If you're in sales or own your own business, listen up. We all know the top reason businesses fail is because they can't find new customers. All you need is to reach the right audience. Sales Genie is the proven way to find, acquire, and retain customers. If you're serious about finding new customers, try Sales Genie's free 14-day trial. Call 866-561-1322 or go to www.salesgenie.com NFL. That's 866-561-1322 or go to www.salesgenie.com NFL. Today's episode of the NFL show is brought to you by State Farm. When you need a game plan for protection, State Farm agents are here to help. With personalized service, agents are available to talk in person over text through the State Farm app. So go with the one with coverage and agents you can count on. Find an agent in your neighborhood today. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. Welcome to the Ringer NFL Show. I'm Robert Mays, joined as always by Kevin Clark. Kevin, how are you doing, buddy? Harry and Megan quit the royal family. It's been a big week. Mike McCarthy joined the royal family. Harry and Megan left the royal family. Transactions everywhere. Non-stop news. So we're going to get into some of the coaching hires, some of the non-coaching hires. I guess the coaching non-hires is how you frame the situation in Cleveland. Before getting into all four of the divisional games, let us start with news that I found shocking. And not just the name and the fit, but how quickly it happened. And that is Mike McCarthy getting hired as the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. I was not necessarily surprised by the fit because I think that it speaks to, there had been reports for a couple of weeks they weren't going to go down the college route. It speaks to what the Jones family thinks of this roster, the fact that they think it's a quick fix solution. So they just hired someone who is probably better than Jason Garrett, but is not, you know, the slam dunk home run hire. Mike McCarthy is not Bill Belichick. He's not Andy Reid. He's not on the A level of coaches, but he's a steady coach who they think can make some quick fixes. So I'm not super surprised by it. Mike McCarthy marketed himself really well over the past two months. Obviously, Garrett and McCarthy are the same agent. And so there was a little bit of weirdness there the last couple of weeks with Garrett kind of begging for his job. But I think that what's instructive here is that last year, everybody wanted a 29-year-old who'd met Sean McVay and wore like a flat-brimmed hat or whatever. And now they want sturdiness and experience and Mike McCarthy or Marvin Lewis or any of these guys. And I think that that's, that's a very funny overcorrection. I don't think actually either trend is necessarily correct. I think it's all case by case, but it's very funny how that's developed the last couple of weeks. And all of a sudden Mike McCarthy is a hot candidate who can get a really good job. Yeah, it probably, I mean, we considered probably the best job of the ones that were available and that all makes sense to me. I think that wanting somebody that's done this before, wanting somebody that's going to come in and know exactly how to run an NFL team, even if by the end of his tenure in Green Bay, it wasn't going very well. But Mm -hmm. like you said, he marketed himself extremely well. Mike McCarthy said and did all the right things over the last couple of weeks and over the last month, especially. He really got his name back in the news by using the media in a smart way and putting out this message that he knows it didn't go well at the end and he's making steps to be a better coach this time around, to be more modern, to be more thoughtful, to have a robust analytics department and an analytics bent to the decisions that he's making. We'll see if any of that comes to light or we'll see if all of that was just lip service to get him this gig, but he has it. And I don't know how it's going to go. So in the same way that everybody had to know Sean McVay last year, including Cliff Kingsbury, who when the Cardinals hired him, the news write-up from ArizonaCardinals.com literally said they are friends. 
Now the new thing is I know the guys at Pro Football Focus. I've spent six hours there and I've toured the facility. So now we're just going to look in Cincinnati. There should be a camera outside of the Cincinnati offices of Pro Football Focus to see all of the fired coaches who do a six-hour tour of Pro Football Focus's offices and learning and just trying to make yourself more appealing for owners. I think, by the way, it's a sign the game has come a long way that that kind of thing is considered a good thing by owners. We we obviously yeah. considered it a good thing, but now that guys like Jerry Jones have bought in, that is that is a positive step for the sport of football. I totally agree. I you know we love that kind of stuff and some of the details that McCarthy had laid out where it's this, this fourteen person staff and all of this. It's like all right, that sounds pretty like that sounds pretty cool. Like if you do that well, that can probably situate you in a good spot to compete with some of these teams that have really committed to that line of thinking. So if they end up doing it, good for the Cowboys. Before we move on, can we talk very briefly about the sleepover aspect of this? So word is that might not be exactly true. There's some conflicting reports on this. There's, so there's a report that he stayed at a hotel that is connected to Jones's compound. So we don't know if there was oh. an actual sleepover. That's such a we bummer. Haven't, or maybe this is just a cover story because it was the most fun sleepover of all time and they played board games and, and, and just had a, and had a huge box of pizza and they had a great time, but they didn't want anybody to know. That's up in the air. Jerry's just in, in flannel PJ pants making popcorn at like two in the morning. Exactly. They're, binge, they're, they're binging all the Star Wars movies. Talking about their hopes and the dreams, watching the new Dracula Netflix thing. Yeah, they're all in. Hey, um, I will say it's really funny to me. I, there, I'm of two minds on the, the staff thing. Number one is all of a sudden it's like, well, he's going to get this great modern staff and he hires Mike Nolan to be his DC. Not, not yeah, totally sure really about good, that yep. one, everybody. But... They get John Fossil, or it is, yeah, it's John Fossil, right? It's not Jim Fossil. John, John Fossil. Fossil. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I could never. John Fossil, who is Jim Fossil's son. That's uh, like when be the, the Bears fired Kevin Gilbride recently, and I was like, wait a second. And it was Kevin, Gro- Kevin Gilbride's son. And I was like, oh, one man, of the that great, makes way more sense. One of the great tragedies of, of the nepotism epidemic in the NFL, and obviously some of these guys are good coaches, is that I just constantly forget which one is which. Yeah. So and anyway, I, I understand that Kevin Gilbride Jr. was the tight ends coach for the Bears. But when you just see these names popping up on social media, it, there's just an immediate reaction sometimes about your brain just doesn't connect at all. So we're going right. to get to another one of those in a moment. But to one more staff note, I like them bringing back Kellen Moore. If, if the goal is trying to have some continuity and do this quickly, I really want to see what Kellen Moore looks like calling plays for someone who isn't Jerry Jones. Okay, so I think we can unpack that for a second. So what, do you want him to have total control over the offense and that Mike McCarthy's a CEO type? Uh, no, I think that there should absolutely be a back and forth. I think it should be a collaborative effort. A lot of offensive-minded head coaches that don't call plays still have a huge say in game planning and all of this mm-hmm. other stuff. I just think that there was a conservative nature to a lot of the things that Jason Garrett did and what he wanted his team to be. Mike McCarthy doesn't really have that conservative nature. So I want to see what... Kellen Moore looks like as a play caller in that scenario if he's given the autonomy to call plays. Okay, so I think that that that's really interesting. Is is you know as someone who's done kind of deep dives on both the McCarthy offense and the Kellen Moore offense, how do they jive and then how do they differ? Oh, they they differ a ton. I mean, I think that right. the amount of play action that Dallas had used at times, the amount of running that Dallas does at times. I mean, the Cowboys' offense ran a ton. I would like to see the shift there between how much they're running and running smart 
being able to mm-hmm. run to set up play action, all of that stuff. McCarthy, there wasn't a ton of pre-snap motion. There weren't a ton of bigger formations. I think that there would be more formational diversity and more running and play action in a Kellen Moore offense than there was at the end of the McCarthy era. But when you go back to like 10, 11, 12, McCarthy was doing a lot of this stuff. So I don't know how much of Rogers' input was involved. I think Mike McCarthy did a lot of really fun things over the course of his time in Green Bay. I think it got stale at the end. I think he has something to add to Kellen Moore's offense and the version of the offense that they should be running. That's what I'll say. I don't think it'll be Mike McCarthy's system that he was running by the end of his time in Green Bay. I really don't. I also think on these things, it's funny. I I, I talked to a couple of people last year about kind of the, the older quarterbacks and, and the advantages they have. And one of the things, I think it was Rich Gannon said this. One of the things he said was that you look at the continuity that Brady has, that Breeze has, and, and one of the things that is so beneficial there is the ability to have a long-term offensive coach who's with them who can say, hey, remember this play we ran two years ago? Like, let's go back to this in this fourth quarter. And they don't really need to do I just wrote that about Drew Brees. Of, of, of installing, right, Exactly. And it's it's funny to me because I think they're not funny, but I think it's it's helpful for someone like Dak Prescott to have someone who he has some familiarity with in the offensive side of the ball where they can speak the same language. He can sort of be the Dak whisperer uh, for Mike McCarthy and say, hey, Dak's comfortable with this, not comfortable with this. I think starting over would probably cost you a couple of months on the install. And I think so Mike McCarthy can bring his vision, but then Kellen Moore can obviously bring his not only play calling, but just his familiarity with Dak Prescott. He's been around there for a while. He obviously knows the ins and outs of the building. Uh, that's why they, he was promoted in the first place. And so I think that you know a guy like Kellen Moore is extremely valuable, and, and that's why you retain him. Yeah, it's about communication. It's about streamlining communication and making sure that stuff is clicking early. So I think it's a good move. It's the move I would have made if McCarthy were open to it. And apparently one of the reasons he's got the job is because he was. So, all right, let's get to that. And, 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 and the sleepover. And the sleepover, of course. Uh, let's get to that other... Uh, thing that kind of flashed across social media that confused me the other day. A lot of when Joe judge was hired and this was mm-hmm. only momentary, but it, when it, when it first hit my brain, this was my thought. I had, I was traveling when the news about him interviewing for the head coaching job came out and I was not super familiar with him before that. So when it was reported that he was the wide receivers coach and he was getting hired by the Giants. I was like, oh, the Patriots wide receivers coach is going to the Giants. Then you spend two minutes. It's like, oh, he's their special teams coordinator. That's what he really is. That's why they're bringing him on. He has a ton of experience there with the, one of the best special teams unit in the league, all of that stuff. But right away, not recognizing his name instantly because I had been gone the entire day when that stuff was bubbling up. And mm-hmm. before Monday, before like Monday morning or Monday evening, he was really connected more to the Mississippi state job than he was to the giants job. So this was surprising, (laughs) even if I understand why the decision was made. Yeah. I mean, he was really well thought of inside Foxborough. And I think that there's, he was apparently supposed to, there were some reports earlier in the week that if McDaniels left, that maybe they were grooming him to be the OC. I think it's something I've talked about on this podcast. I think special teams coaches are a better proving ground for head coaches than maybe we think just because of the adaptability they have to have. The fact that we both feel that way. They they essentially have to do 
a fire drill every single week um, because it's okay. This guy's hurt on offense or this guy's gotten too good. He can't play special teams. They have to adjust. I mean, the adjustments are incredible. John Harbaugh was a special teams coach. Um, you know, and, and, and we saw that worked out. He's also a DB coach at one point. So kind of like Joe judge had his, uh, had it wore a bunch of different hats to different yep. parts in his career. I think Belichick also was a special teams guy at one point. Um, and obviously he's a, he remains a special teams guy. Special teams guy. Yeah. He is the special teams guy. But I think when you think about it overall, I think this was, I don't think it was desperation really because they, you know, the giants could have taken their time, but they obviously thought that they could, they had a, a better shot at Matt rule than they actually did. Um, you know, there were reports that maybe they should have just gone down to Mexico or Matt, Matt rule was, and he would have taken the meeting or maybe Matt rule wanted the giants job at the beginning of this process. And then David Tepper made the seven year, you know, $70 million offer plus bought, it, bought the Baylor contract out for an additional six million. So David Tepper wanted this to happen. The Giants were not willing to go there. And so was I surprised at the hire? Yeah, probably. I think this was really might have been a little bit early. Um, but I think that one of the things that we've learned over the past, I don't know, I've been covering this league for since 2012, I think, something like that. And I think that everybody is is mostly about half wrong every single time on the hiring cycle. Um, I think that someone like Matt LaFleur last year was, was met with a lot of Miz, even, you know, even people inside the league were like, meh. And Matt LaFleur is, is coaching on the bye this weekend and he is a good coach. And I think people thought, oh, he's just a guy. He's a, you know, a friend of McVay, this kind of thing. Well, Matt LaFleur can coach. And, and, and we learned that this year. And so I don't, I think that sometimes coaches don't know what will work with other coaches. I think that people look too much at success as a coordinator and then think that will automatically translate to, to head coaching. That's not the case. The head coach, it's completely, it, it is almost non-transferable to be a really sharp coordinator and then go to head coaching. It is a com- almost a completely different skill set. And, and uh, I think that there are obviously guys who are such good play callers. They'll always have success at, as a head coach. But I think that sometimes we look at the things that make someone a good assistant and assume that will make them a good head coach. And we don't know that maybe it's, it's more of an abstract thing. So if the giants saw something in Joe judge, I think that I'm, I'm willing to at least give them a chance, but yeah, it's a, it's definitely a head scratcher in the, in the overall picture of what these hires have been this year. I don't think it's a head scratcher. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to make fun of the giants. I completely understand why a guy like that would be attractive to you because I'm with you. I think that special teams coaches are uniquely set up if given the chance to do this well, because they have to look at the entire roster all the time. They have to coach a ton of different guys and moving parts. It really is an organizational job in the way that being a head coach is. So I think, and with everything Belichick said today, I mean, that was a rave review when it comes to Bill Belichick. I mean, he said he was a great coach. He said he picked up things quickly. That's the type mm-hmm. of stuff you like to hear. I mean, if he's somebody that is open-minded, is smart, is flexible, all of those things, being a head coach is about a lot of that. I mean, John Harbaugh is the perfect example this year. I will disagree with you slightly where you said that being a head coach and a coordinator have completely different skill sets. Okay. I don't necessarily agree with that because I think that being a really good coordinator and a lot of the guys I've talked to about that, about really good coordinators, whether it's Sean Payton or Kyle Shanahan, you know, the guys that are really good at this and have been for a long time are still at their core, excellent teachers. They're very good at communicating ideas because 
that's what calling offense is. And that's what teaching offense is. It's a lot. It's about detail and it's about synthesis of information. So I do think that a lot of guys that are really good offensive coordinators, there are translatable skills, even if they are in a one-to-one job. Yeah, I, I I agree that there's there's a level of coordinating success that then can transfer over, and there's there's some things within that that will make you a good head coach. All I'm saying is that there 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 it exists where you can be a terrible coordinator and a great head coach, sure. or vice versa. Um, and so w- what I'm saying is is that when you start looking at the pool of candidates and you say this guy's a good offensive coordinator versus this guy's a good special teams coach. Um, we don't have to just look at points per game here and, and, and pick. And so I think it's more, it's more, all I'm saying is it's more of an abstract proposition than maybe we, we give it credit for. And a couple of teams the last couple of years have, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's a little bit interesting to me, someone like McVeigh, obviously he had the, the success with Kirk cousins, but when you talk to people in Los Angeles about that, they thought that was a leadership thing. That yes. wasn't even an X's and O's thing. That was a leader of men thing. And I don't think, I, I think that's what sold them. And they kind of took the the quarterback stuff as a bonus. It's actually very interesting. And I, I believe they're telling the truth and they talk about that. Um, and I think, you know, a great example of the other way is Freddie Kitchens, who had such great success with Baker Mayfield in 2018. And then they thought that that play calling and that familiarity could transfer over. And it just didn't because I wasn't, there were, gameplay mistakes made everywhere. There were strange decisions made everywhere. Uh, He just didn't have his guys ready to play. And so that's where I look at Freddie Kitchens as an example of just play calling, not transferring over to, to the head coaching position. Sean Payton. I disagree with you. Okay. I think that for, I feel like they hired Freddie Kitchens in a way because of that, like, He's just a guy who gets along with everybody and is like a good person to have in the locker yeah, room. Yeah, but kind I, of guy. I, I think that I think they would have just cleaned house and not brought the interim back had the Baker not have looked so good in November and December last year. I agree with I agree with that, but I think that there are I, I can't think of an example right now, but I definitely feel like there are more apt examples for like you know special you know beautiful mind coordinators that ended up not being very good head well, coaches. I mean, the the, the, like, the best example or North Turner. Yeah, Norv Turner's Nor- a great Norv example. Turner d- yeah. made the Dallas offense into you know something absolutely incredible. Uh, you know the nine eight nine routes, all that stuff, and then he becomes a thoroughly mediocre head coach. That there's a million examples of the past thirty years of good coordinators not becoming good head coaches. But and and there's also, by the way, good examples of good coordinators becoming good head coaches. But that also, it, you know, you have to have more than just the play calling. That's what I'm talking about. You have to have more. And just the coordinating, just the plays, a lot of good plays, not a lot of leaders. Yeah, that's I, that, on that. We agree. So let's get to Mount Rule in Carolina. I, I, I know what I've learned over this, these last couple of weeks. Now, I don't watch much college football. I know you don't watch a ton of college football outside of your occasional Miami game. I am not super familiar with what Baylor does. I've, I was listening to a couple of conversations uh, with Mount Rule that he was having with other people. Uh, I think with Daniel Jeremiah and, Bucky Brooks, just about kind of how he had to recruit at Baylor, which, you know, he can't get the five-star guys that, you know, schools like Oklahoma can necessarily get or Alabama. So they looked for length, athleticism, ways to translate those physical skills to certain positions, which I think that's a, there's a level of mental flexibility there that I appreciate. But outside of that, I don't know a ton about him. I know people that respect him. I know people I respect 
think highly of him. You know, Chris Brown, smart football was talking about it today, Mm -hmm. just the conversations he's had with him. So it seems like a hire that makes sense because it's a guy that everyone was after, but I don't have a really strong opinion on it one way or the other. I mean, it's a huge commitment from the Panthers, Yes, but David Tepper has talked about how he's going to give his guy time. And I think that's, that's what's, that's the key to me is giving him four or five years to really build something. And that's why you give him such a long contract. That's why you buy him out of his contract at Baylor. And I think generally when you start talking about sort of what a, what a college coach needs, I mean, it's going to take at least a year to even sort of figure out, I mean, he'll get NFL guys on his staff, but with the exception of Chip Kelly, whose plays initially just caught the NFL so by storm that he had immediate success with it. I think if you're trying to be a program builder and he's turned around, you know, two programs at Baylor and, and Temple, um, I think that it's going to take a little bit of time. And David Tepper giving him that rope, I think, is really, really important. And I think that that's something where, you know, Albert Brewer had that note a couple of months ago about how bad most new owners' first hires are. And yeah. part of that is they just don't know what they're looking for. And to kind of turn over the keys to Matt Rule and say, you've got four or five years to figure this out, I think it's okay. I think there won't be a lot of false starts in Carolina like there have been with other ownership groups, but I think they've made a mistake and they get rid of a Mike Malarkey. This is not a Mike Malarkey-style hire. Matt Rule is a good coach, and I think given time, he will figure out the NFL. I like them giving him a lot of, him a lot of runway, too. I think Marty Herney came out today and said they were giving him carte blanche and just letting him say, this is your program, kind of build it how you want to. And he wants to do the sports science stuff. I mean, yeah. if, if he wants to totally take over the organization, you got to give him at least you know three, four years before even evaluating him. And it seems like they're willing to do that. I think yep. with both him and Joe Judge, the coordinator hires are going to be important. And I think that in New York, even more so, because it, has Rule said whether he's going to call the plays or not? I didn't see that, actually. I watched a, a, about half of his introductory press conference today, he actually, he, he kind of was, he was extremely motivational and I th- I wanted to run through a wall afterwards, but he was kind of noncommittal on a few things. He, he was asked about the roster and he basically said he knew the key pieces, but hadn't really studied it because he was, he's obviously coaching the bowl game and stuff like that. So I, I think that there were, um, I think he's, he still has a lot of outstanding questions that will be answered in the next couple of weeks. So that those are yet to be answered. The same is true with judge and the guy he's going to hire guys. He's going to hire the thought of bringing in Jason Garrett to be the offensive coordinator there is terrifying to me. I don't know terrifying how real that is. In a bad way, right? In a, in a bad way, yes. Oh, in Carolina. Or no, no, in New York. New York. New York, right, right, right. Uh, I agree with that. That would be bad. So let's, let's be a little bit better than that. If we're going to hire a smart guy who's a program, the guy who's building a program and he's a CEO type, let's sure he's making the right well, hires. Let me stop you right there. What should Jason Garrett do for the next year? Should he go the pro football focus route? I don't know. Go do anything. I would, if somebody wants to hire him as an offense coordinator, go do it. I just don't, I, if I were running an organization, I wouldn't do it. No, but what I'm saying, if Jason Garrett's goal is to be a head coach again, should he go take a, an OC job with someone like Daniel Jones's quarterback and risk sort of failure there or does he just kind of take a year off and rebrand does he go into media for a year i, mean, I think there's a lot of possibilities here for for the resurrection of, of of jason garrett you probably you might be right i mean we saw what just happened with mike mccarthy i don't think he's a, a, a good option for a team i'm saying he will be hired again as a head coach because that's sort of how these things work i know that that, that is just a really frightening proposition the fact that that's probably true all right 
Let's finish up here with a couple stray thoughts. Let's talk about the Browns, the guys that are left. The Browns obviously don't have to, don't, they're, they're not in a hurry now. Uh, mm-hmm. Today, probably as we're recording this podcast, interviewing Jim Schwartz, the Eagles defensive coordinator. Tomorrow, yep. they'll interview Kevin Stefanski, the Vikings offense coordinator. Friday, yep. Patriots offense coordinator Josh McDaniels. This is all according to one Adam Schefter. They have already interviewed Eric Bieniemy, Greg Roman, and Robert Sala. They could take their time here, man. It's a, you know, I gotta be honest, that's a, with the exception of Schwartz, that's a pretty good list. I, I, I mean, it's probably the list I would build. I, I think there's a lot of good options on there. So who would you, you would go? I, I, knowing you, you would go with Stefanski. I mean, not necessarily. I just thought that he made sense for what it seemed like they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. No, he's he's very open to the analytical thoughts. They wanted to hire him last year. I think you know that those are the reports, and they ended up going with Kitchens. So I, he's the not deep, necessarily Paul Podesta did. Paul Podesta did, and yeah, yeah now, now there is more power isolated with Paul Podesta than there was last year. So it wouldn't surprise me if he was a guy that they had their eye on. But I don't know, man. I mean, it's. I think McDaniel's has been really good for a long time. I think that it would make sense for him to be getting another shot. I still don't understand why Eric Bieniemy hasn't been interviewed by all these teams or gotten a job. I mean, I guess I do understand, but it's still frustrating. So I don't know. I mean, it's every year we want to pretend like we know which of these are going to work out and which don't, but I, I have no idea. Every, I, that's what I was saying earlier. I mean, we're just colossally wrong on a lot of these hires. Yeah. A lot of them. Except Jim Tom Sula as defensive line coach, with <laughs> which is an absolute home run hire with the uh, the Dallas Cowboys. I think we can look at process and say, was the process here smart? I don't know if the end all result is something we can judge until we see how it all plays out. So I have no idea what the Browns are going to do, but I do think that's the right kind of list for them to find a good hire among them. Mm hmm. Before we move on, let's take a quick break. Today's episode of the NFL show is brought to you by State Farm. When you need a game plan for protection, State Farm agents are here to help. With personalized service, agents are available to talk in person, over text, or through the State Farm app. So go with the one with coverage and agents you can count on. Find an agent in your neighborhood today. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. All right, buddy. Let's get to the games. Vikings. At 49ers on Saturday, you are going to be at this game, correct? I'm going to be at this game. It's exciting. I'm I'm excited about this game. Uh, I think it's a really intriguing matchup. I think that, again, I think we slept on the Vikings all season long, but I think this Niners team is really freaking good. Is there any case to be made for the Minnesota Vikings? And if there is, oh, I think so. I absolutely think so. I mean, watching what their defense did, to the to the Saints in the dome last week mm-hmm. is undeniably impressive. I mean, Mike Zimmer is an excellent head coach on a game to game basis. He's a fantastic game planner, and this is still a team with a lot of talent. You know, their corners are a nightmare, but they were still able to slow down Michael Thomas because one, they have a great coaching staff, and two, they have tons of talent other elsewhere on the field. So the Niners really like to build their offense through the middle of the field. You know, they're not an outside the numbers team. They don't have a dominant number one receiver that plays in a prototypical way. You know, Debo Samuel is a crossing route guy. He's this, he's that. We can get to that. But they're really built to attack between the numbers and between the hashes. And that's where the Vikings are really good. 
You know, Anthony Harris is a star that no one really knows about. Harrison Smith is still great. Their linebackers are good in coverage. Anthony Barr is, a, is occasionally a liability, and I can imagine that Kyle Shanahan has been devising ways to torture him over the past week. But I still think that the makeup of this Niners passing game versus the makeup of the Vikings defense gives Minnesota a chance. I agree with that. Um, I think that the Kirk Cousins sort of hatred had, hopefully that has subsided a little bit because I still think Kirk Cousins, I mean, it was really weird to watch that, that Saints game and the sort of Twitter meme world go against Kirk Cousins beginning of the fourth quarter of that game when he was going, obviously it's not a quarterback wins league or anything like that, but he was playing really well at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Drew Brees was not, and everybody was saying, "Uh uh-oh, Cousins just failing in a big spot. Here, classic Cousins. And I just think that uh, hopefully that 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 game last week will get people to understand that Kirk Cousins is, at the very least, a good quarterback, and he's not He's not a joke here. We're, we're post-joke on Kirk Cousins. I understand he got a fully guaranteed contract because he bet on himself better than any quarterback in history, but Kirk Cousins is a good quarterback. Where are you right now, speaking of, of that matchup, on the 49ers defense? You know, I think that I don't think anything is uh, more instructive than the fact that people are basically saying that Robert Salah should not be hired as a head coach because of of kind of the the – I don't know, I, the in-season regression of the 49ers defense, but I still think that's a solid unit. What are you expecting from the Vikings offense against the, the Niners defense, Robert? I feel like we saw how important Adam Thielen can be to that offense last week yep. against New Orleans. Adam Thielen hurts his ankle today in practice. We're recording this on a Wednesday. So he was limited. We'll see how much that lingers into the weekend. It feels like over the second half of the season, when the Niners have had to play against a good passing game, they've tended to struggle. The well, Vikings, they've also been banged up. They've also been they've banged also up. Been banged up. Totally, totally fair. So I think that that's that leads to another point. The Vikings really love throwing the ball downfield. It's the lifeblood of their passing game are those play action chunks that they take. You think about that throw to Thielen to set up the game winner. That is what Minnesota wants to be. Kirk Cousins throws a gorgeous deep ball. He's really good off play action, and they love taking shots. The Niners, when they've been healthy, have been excellent at taking away throws down the field. Mm -hmm. So is there a way that the Vikings can kind of tweak their passing game in order to move the ball consistently with a ball control offense? I have my doubts about that because the Vikings often put themselves in terrible down and distance situations by slamming into the line on first down for two yards. So I would love to see them come out, throw the ball a little bit more, lean on the guy who is been one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL this year instead of forcing them to make huge plays when in high leverage moments. I just don't know if that's going to happen against this Niners team. Quan Alexander's return, and we don't know how many snaps he'll play, but the idea that he's going to pull a J.J. Watt this week I think is really important and probably overlooked in the narrative of this game. Quan Alexander is very good. Yeah, it gives them more speed. You know, if they really want to kind of use Dalvin Cook in the screen game, things like that, then a guy like Quan Alexander being on the field would be huge. But I'm always kind of hesitant about guys coming back from injury that late. I mean, Watt had that sack on Saturday, but he was a shell of himself and didn't play that many snaps, all of that stuff. So uh, we'll see how much that matters. But if he's at full go, absolutely. Against a team like this that really wants to run the ball, he could be a huge asset. The only thing that matters is if they get to be mic'd up when they come back. That's the one lesson we learned from J.J. Watt. You think Quan Alexander will be as excited about it as J.J. Watt was? Let's go over and over from Quan Alexander. All right, uh, prediction. I think the Niners win, but I think seven points is a lot. Yeah. um, 
I th- I think not. I think seven points seems right. Like I think that's literally what it's going to be. I think it's a close game. I could see something really similar to what happened in New Orleans last week, where it's twenty to twenty and it comes down to the last possession. Maybe. Um, I think it's going to be like twenty-seven twenty as a final. Yeah, that's pretty much yeah. what I said. It, yeah, it's. But I, I said think seven points. You way. said seven points a little bit. I think twenty. I think seven points exactly right. Twenty-seven twenty. This is my take. I think somewhere around there. I'm just not sure which way it's going to go. I absolutely think the Vikings can win that game. The last time the 49ers defense, which was playing at a historically good rate, allowed under 20 points was that blowout against Carolina. Nope. Packers. Oh, yeah. Another blowout. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to Green Bay. They gave up 20 to the Ravens in that cr- that that crappy rain game. Then they put up, gave up 46, 29, 31, 21. It's interesting. Let's get to the Titans and the Ravens on Saturday night. I'm a little upset about this because I wrote when the Texans were, uh, when it came out that they weren't going to hire a new GM, I wrote that it really felt like the Texans season was going to end on a cold Saturday in Baltimore in the divisional Mm -hmm. round. And I'm just sad that I'm not going to be able to be right about that. (laughs) That It's going to be the Titans season who ends on a cold Saturday in Baltimore. But the fact that it's an AFC South team does feel correct. Okay. There's a couple of things I want to talk about Derrick Henry here because I want to get all the Derrick Henry talk in we can because I don't think this is going to go on for very much longer. I think that the Titans probably lose on Saturday, but I do want to we do want to praise Derrick Henry as much as possible. So according to Jim Wyatt from the Titans, Derrick Henry had, had 167 of his 182 rushing yards against the Patriots after a defender got within one yard, which is the most by a rusher since next gen stats came into existence in 2016. Now, I don't love that stat. Okay, tell me why. With you. Because I thought that they did an incredible job up front against New England. It's not as if he was just running over guys and then getting I didn't, a ton well, of yards. I mean, he was, he, but he was doing that too. He was doing some of that, but I think that there was a lot of plays. There were a lot of plays that were blocked up extremely well where he's running right next to a defensive player. The defensive player just happens to be completely locked down by Roger Saffold. I understand what you're saying, but there were a lot of business decisions made. There were so many business decisions. There were some business decisions made. Did you see Um, the one that I wrote about this on Monday? Did you see the one JC Jackson made? I did. I didn't. I don't think I saw it. No, it was in the second half and it was one where this was an incredible Henry run. He gets stuffed up at the line a little bit. Danny Shelton comes off a double team because the Johnu Smith blocked uh, Dante Hightower into someone. So Shelton's just standing in the hole. Henry bounces it. He's way outside. And JC Jackson is the one that is tasked with tackling him and just starts running backwards. Literally, he was running backwards while Derrick Henry was just in the open field, just so he didn't have to take him full like head on. He kind of grabbed him and tried to pull him to the ground. It was wonderful. Incredible. And I, I'm not upset with JC Jackson for this, because if I were him, I would do the exact same thing. So I thought it was interesting. Speaking of this is that NFL live had a good stat today that Henry leads the NFL in yards after contact and Lamar Jackson leads the NFL in rushing yards after contact and Lamar Jackson leads the NFL in rushing yards before contact. And these two players are playing this weekend. So we're going to see two sides of the coin in that regard. I think what's amazing about Lamar Jackson's running again, even though 
it's not like he's easy to tackle by any means. In fact, there's, there's guys I've talked to have said he's. I was going to ask you: Is there has does, does Lamar Jackson have any yards after contact? Because that you have to assume he has been contacted. If that were the case, yeah, he has been contact. I mean, like okay. he's hard to. I, it's he's hard. It's a different type of contact. I mean, I think he just slips out of guys' hands. Oh, I was I mean, making a not, joke about how no one's oh. tackled him the entire season. Oh, I get it. I'm sorry. I was so I was right. taking a little more literally. I apologize. I've, I no had worries, a football buddy. point to make. Um, but okay. So I, I think that, I think that with, with Jackson, what's amazing. I, I wrote a story about this on the ringer this week and, and there was a guy named Jerome Baker who plays linebacker for the dolphins. He's a really, really smart guy and he's a good player as well. Um, and I, I am, I'm, I think very highly of him as a player and a, and a person. So we talked about Lamar Jackson when I was down in Miami a couple weeks ago. And he said, the reason that Lamar Jackson is good is not just because he can take advantage of slow guys. A lot of guys can do that. That that's fine. Congratulations to to a bunch of guys who can do that. It's that he can use speed, which is you know the most important thing for any NFL defense now against a player. And he knows how to decelerate. He knows how to play the angles. And if you come in too fast, you essentially will you'll look foolish. And so you can't come in too slow because you'll never get close to him. And you can't come in too fast because he will use those angles against you. This is why he's so hard to tackle. This is why you need three people to tackle him. When I asked players how or coaches, how do you tackle Lamar Jackson? There is no answer, although they say, you know, fundamentals or whatever. It's you have to get three guys on him or you have to get two guys on him. That was the thing. I talked to a guy named Rick Venturi, who was a longtime defensive coordinator about this. And he said, the problem with, with playing run defense at the line against Lamar Jackson is that you need a man and a half in every gap because you're not going to get him with one guy. And so playing it in any way with his speed right now and with his instincts right now and with the way he plays the angles, playing Lamar Jackson as a runner is a nightmare. And if you commit to doing so, he'll probably just pass on you and you'll, you'll, you'll be screwed anyway. There's really no answer because along with all that, they have 20 other moving parts that are making all these plays hard to defend. It's just a nightmare. I was in Baltimore last week talking to some of the guys on the offensive line and a couple of the guys in their defense about just what it's like to watch all the moving things and just how distracting it is and how hard it is to be disciplined and how hard it is to do what you should be doing when there's three tight ends going this way and there's a ghost motion going that way. And it's just, they really just make it hard to defend. We've said that before. It's a diff, it's an offense that is just built to frustrate you. And that starts and ends with Lamar Jackson or starts with Lamar Jackson and goes in a hundred different ways. I was, I talked to the way you said about the angles thing is so interesting. I wrote a story about Aaron Jones. That's running tomorrow on the ringer. And we were, he was talking to me about why he looks powerful without being big because mm-hmm. he's only five, nine, which answer big shoulder pads. It's I, no, it's, he's only five, nine, which when I was talking to people, everyone kept saying, yeah, you know, he's not a very big back and I'd never really stood next to him before. And I, I was just taking it from watching him on t- on TV. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's not a big back. He's not mm-hmm. like a scat back. Like he runs through tackles all the time. And what he was saying was. It's just a matter of making sure that you change the angles to make tackles no longer head on. That's how you break tackles while not being a huge, powerful person. And Lamar Jackson is able to do that as well. He, it looks like he's running through people, but really he's running through half of a person. And that's the biggest thing. If you can make sure that you're not letting guys square you up, it's a lot easier to look like you're stronger than you are. Yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, George Kittle was undersized for a lot of his Iowa career. I mean, like it's not, 
it, it's it, it's about its mentality and its angles, and that's what's that's what's interesting to me about kind of playing powerfully when you're not Derrick Henry, so to speak. I will say I I I'm I think that uh, big shoulder pads help. Big shoulder pads definitely help. That's what guys should do. Just wear the big shoulder that's pads. Possible. Also, like Eli Manning wore big shoulder pads for his entire career, and he just looked weird the whole time. I'm for it. I, I want to talk just very briefly about an extension of the Derrick Henry thing. What we saw last week from New England is that the Patriots just said, we're going to play two high safeties, we're going to slow play the run, and we're going to dare you to beat us by running for 300 yards. Mm-hmm. And the Titans essentially did that. Uh, they scored 14 points, though. 14 points, no matter how well the Titans' defense plays against the Ravens, is not going to be enough. I'll be curious if the Ravens saw what New England did because they have really s- similar personnel. Excellent defensive backs. You know, their players up front are fundamentally sound, and, and but they're not exactly super talented. They just are perfect within that scheme. So are they going to sit back and say, we trust our ability to tackle and we trust our ability to defend the run with two deep safeties rather than letting you guys throw the ball over the top on us with play action? Yes. Um, okay, so the thing about the Titans is they had 71 passing yards against the New England Patriots. This is going to have to be, and I, I think that the the Rave, I think they'll get more, spoiler, they'll get more than 71 yards on Sunday, but it's not like Ryan Tannehill is, is going to become Patrick Mahomes all of a sudden. I think Ryan Tannehill is a really good quarterback in the context of this offense. He's had a great year and all that stuff, but I really do think that this is going to come down to a, a Derrick Henry performance. This is a, a rare running back who I think kind of can do things that that we used to imagine or, or running backs did do 10, 15, 20 years ago. This is a throwback kind of player. And I really do think, and I know that there's a million uh, arguments against this, but I do think this is going to be a, a running back-led performance. And if, if, if they're going to have any chance on Saturday, it's going to be a special Derrick Henry performance doing, doing it. See, I think he could run for 250 yards and they could still lose 28 to 14. Oh, I no, no, no. I agree with you. I'm saying that there's going to be, if there's any chance of that happening, I think Henry has to have a great game. I think he has to have a monster game, but I also think that Tannehill does. I, mean, I think that they have to throw the ball extremely well to win. I think they have to get like fumble luck and like all they have to have like 10. If there are 10 things that determine a football game and they're actually 100, but to simplify it, if there are 10 things they need to get, they need to win eight of those things, nine of those things. And You're they right. need to get lucky. They need a couple big plays in the passing game, though. I yeah. do think that they need one AJ Brown 65 yard screen pass to go their way. And I just don't think they have the ability in the receiving core to be able to do anything like that against this Baltimore secondary. Yeah, I'm not. I, I don't see a, t- a, a a real way path path forward for this team. Um, I think that the Titans have done a hell of a job. I think they've had a great, agree. Uh, John Robinson's team building here has been phenomenal. AJ Brown, Derrick Henry. I mean, these are some of the breakout stars. Ryan Tannehill, quite frankly, um, despite his 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 uh, 2012 draft status, uh, Ryan Tannehill has been one of the breakout stars of the league. So is so is AJ Brown, and so I think that they're. They're going to be good next year. They're going to be fine, but I think it's, it's the end of the road this weekend. I, think, I agree with you. Okay, let's get to the Sunday games. Texans at Chiefs. I also think this line is extremely high. What is it? Nine and a half. Hmm. We saw the Texans beat the Chiefs this year. We did. And I don't know. I, I think that 
the, the Chiefs are probably playing better right now. Their defense is certainly the playing better. I know that one Thornhill being out, but I still think the defense is playing better. So the Chiefs defense has given up going. So they, they gave up three points to Mitch Trubisky, which shouldn't count. But they also gave up three points to Drew Locke, which counts a little better. Patriots, 16. They, they, had the, they gave up 21 points against the Chargers at the end of the season as well. Uh, nine points against the Raiders. These are all December games, right? So the most, they've give, the, the most they've given up in the month of December is 21, and the second most is 16. And then beyond that, they were less than 10. Is this real? Or is just this a matter of playing a team like the Bears or playing a Patriots team who is struggling on offense at the time or the Broncos? or the Raiders is, is this a real defensive hot streak or is this kind of like what we talked about earlier in the year with the Patriots and the Niners? They just happened to be playing teams that were struggling offensively and that made them look better. I think it's a little column a, a little column B. I would I'm say it's you. more about the I competition agree. than it is about a hot streak, but I do think they're playing better. I do think they've settled in. I think Matthew's playing excellent. You know, Davis Ward has been really good for them. I think they're play, getting good play up front, getting Chris Jones back, you know, for the second half of the season was big for them. They have talent on that side of the ball, and I do think that they're so much better coached over there than they were last season. But playing against a team like the Texans, I think, is a different sort of challenge. You know, when Houston played them the first time, it wasn't Watson. It was them just running the ball down their throats. So I feel like the Texans' best chance here is to take advantage of that Chiefs defense where it's not very good, and that's at linebacker, and that's with a guy like Duke Johnson in the passing game, and it's by lining up in heavier formations, running the ball, hitting some play action throws off that. What I love from Watson when they played last time, it was one of the best games I've ever seen Deshaun Watson play to that point in his career, even if his numbers weren't great because he was just getting rid of the ball. It was his lo- fastest throw, time to throw of the season. He's throwing hot consistently. You know, the Chiefs are going to bring some heat. So is he somebody that can get rid of the ball on time? Because that wasn't happening against Buffalo in the first half. So I think there are a lot of factors that need to go the Texans' way, but I've also seen those factors go their way at some point this season. Yeah, I mean, look, Bill O'Brien made some really good halftime adjustments last week. I was actually impressed by that, and I'm not typically impressed with what Bill O'Brien does. That was a Deshaun Watson performance. Deshaun Watson won that game. I mean, the just the, the last the game the play that won them the game in overtime is is one of the plays of the season, um, and I think that game was so drunk generally that I think that 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 in some ways got overshadowed. Shea Serrano did a great job of of sort of breaking down that play on the ringer.com this week and sort of what that meant. Uh but this is going to have to be another Deshaun Watson game because listen, I think I'm I feel like I'm trapped. Have you seen yesterday the Beatles movie? I have. I feel like I'm trapped in that and I'm the only person who remembers how good Patrick Mahomes is. Like I I, I just it, because of Lamar Jackson's emergence as, as the hot new quarterback, because of the dislocated kneecap that miraculously only led to, what, three missed games, because of the ankle injury before that, Patrick Mahomes has not been talked about hardly ever this year. Um, and this time last year, he was going to change the game. I think he still is going to change the game. I think he's really good. I think that when the Ravens and the Chiefs play, it's going to be one of the best games in a very, very long time. It's going to be awesome. Because those are two of the best quarterbacks, not only of this generation, but of the next generation, obviously. So I think that this is Patrick Mahomes' 105 rating this year, which brings down his career rating to 108.9. Uh, how's how's he going to? handle that um and i just this is this is a a chief's win unless something crazy happens i don't think anything crazy has to happen i think that the the texans secondary while bad for most of the season has been playing a little bit better 
I mm-hmm. think that if Watt can make one big play, if his presence can help Whitney Merciless do something like it did last week, if Watson can really turn it on against this team, if they can run the ball efficiently, I don't. it's not like the Texans game to me, or it's not like the Titans-Ravens game to me, where I think they need three, like a plus three turnover differential and all that kind of stuff. I think there are clear paths for the Texans to win, but I'm with you. I mean, it's still Patrick Mahomes. This def- this offense may not be kind of the planet-destroying machine that they were last year, but they're still pretty damn good. And uh, they have a lot of pieces back. Their offensive line was not healthy for a good chunk of the season. I, I think that they're going to be just fine. I think they're going to win this game. But I don't think it- it's out of the question for the Texans to somehow put together a normal game that can beat them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, what, what kind of score are you expecting here? Like 28-21 kind of deal? Yeah, that sounds 20. right. Yeah, that sounds right to me. I'm going to push it into two possessions. I'm going to say 28 to to like 18. I think 28-21 uh, Chiefs sounds right to me. Okay. All right. Let's get to the Sunday late game. I will be at this game. Yeah. I Congratulations for getting to go to San Francisco while I'll be dri- driving to Green Bay. And it, most I like Green Bay, but it's mostly because right there, right in, in Green Bay right now, it is... 18 degrees. So that's going to be great. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's not going to be that warm in San Francisco. Oh, no, it's not going to be like a, yeah, it's going to be fine. But in Green Bay, it's going to be 24 on Sunday. So I assume that's going to be gonna snow. Uh, it, no snow on the forecast right now. It actually says partly sunny. Are you good at driving in snow? No. I don't drive enough now to be good at driving in anything. I, one of the things having grown up in Florida, one of the things I'm surprisingly good at is driving in snow. Like, cause sometimes you go to green Bay in like December, January. And I remember going a couple of years ago in January to that Hail Mary story where I interviewed Rogers for it. And the roads were just caked with, with snow everywhere. And you just kind of have to go for it. You just have to just keep driving. Don't overthink it. It's like Derek. Yeah, Henry. Just, you just got to don't make any over. panic moves. As don't, long as you're don't not overdrive. Standing. As long as you're not driving too fast, as long as you're not following too closely, as long as you're not hitting the brake too much, because that's when you start to swerve, just drive. Well, not and actually, be to be honest with you, you don't have to worry about following anybody because there's not really a lot of people on the roads. They're too smart to be out driving. Oh, uh, well, I don't really have a choice. I've, I've been fine. I can drive in snow. I'm no, not I, I, I'm the, the same way. Unfortunately, when you do this stuff, you have to go out and drive and all do this stuff and, and put yourself in strange snow situations. No, the option just hang out. No, we'll be okay though. I'm not too worried about it. Let's get to the game. Uh, I think that I think I don't know what to think about this game. That, <laughs> that's well, that's the Seahawks for you, dude. That is the that's Seahawks. Exactly right. That's that's why Danny Kelly has had stress levels through the roof for the past decade. Like this is Seahawks. Well, fandom. let's take it easy. Let's take it easy. They were the best team in the league for like four straight years. I don't need to hear about Danny Kelly's stress levels. Five years ago, right now, totally fine. What were your what were your Bears level uh, stress levels during the Jay Cutler era? That, that's exactly what I mean. I, I had real stress levels when it came to my team for a long, long time. The, the Seahawks are maddening right now, but I don't want to hear about how stressed out those guys were about the 2013 and 14 Seahawks. I mean, there were some stressful games. After you, the 2013 Super Bowl wasn't a stressful game. That's true. That's actually the, the most normal game they've played. It's just completely and, owning Peyton Manning. 
And when you're coming off that, it, you're not allowed to say that the – I understand the Marshawn Lynch-Malcolm Butler game is sad and you'd like to have it back and all of that. But 12 months removed from that dismantling of the 2013 Broncos, you can only be so stressed. Hmm. I think I, – I think, I think well, this is something that we've had discussions on multiple pods. I think that it's really hard for, for any fans to have that long of a memory. Like, I think they just kind of, they're like, uh, fans are like goldfish. I they just kind of so. take everything a, a day. To, no one says, like, oh, well, we had a good run last year when Malcolm Butler intercepts the pass in the end zone. We project that onto people. But really, they, they, it's basically they feel the same thing over and over again. Yeah, that's probably true. But I, I still feel like when you step back and really consider it, even if you were stressed in the moment, it's probably a little bit easier to take. All right, let's 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 get to this game. You said you don't know what to think about it. Can you unpack that for us? I mean, we've seen how much the Packers passing game has struggled recently. And I know the Seahawks have deficiencies on defense. I mean, they will see what, who knows what they would have done if Carson Wentz hadn't gotten hurt last week. The Packers have really struggled to move the ball through the air. Again, I wrote about Aaron Jones for tomorrow. I think that he's become a legitimate star. Their ability to use him as a receiver has been excellent, but I think that the Seahawks are well-equipped to deal with that. You have guys like Bobby Wagner and you have guys like KJ, Wright. It's not, as if you can take advantage of people like Anthony Hitchens like they did when they were playing the Chiefs when you can't find offense elsewhere. So while Seattle's defense doesn't scare anybody right now, I don't think the Green Bay offense does either. I think this is what producer Craig asked us who we were picking at the beginning of this, and we basically agreed on the three favorites and then this game. This game is a black hole for predictions um, because I'm not totally sure at this point. I mean, the Packers have at different times this year, looked like a completely different team. The through line is that they've looked pretty good the whole year, as it, that you don't get the buy unless you've played really well. And at some point, there's a little Bill Parcells there. You are what your record says you are. I think the Packers are a good team. We've seen the DVOA stuff that say they're one of the worst 13-3 and teams in history or whatever. That's a nice problem to have. I'd rather be a, one of the worst 13-3 and teams in history than one of the best 9-7 and teams in history. Um... I think that the Packers, I think that the Packers are probably, this is something I said on Sunday, are probably going to have a chance to win this game very late. I think it probably comes down to a, a last second play. I, I think it's going to, I think it's exactly what I said on Sunday. It's going to be 25 seconds left. Someone's at the 19 yard line. Somebody makes a play. I'm going to predict having looked at this game, that that team that wins that game in the last second, it's going to be the Seattle Seahawks. It's hard to pick against Russell Wilson in close games right now. I know close games are mostly random, mm -hmm. but it still feels like he manages to pull out every single one of them. I think that the Packers' best hope here is their defense because mm -hmm. what they've been able to do on defense recently has been incredibly impressive. You know, I know that Aaron, Aaron Jones had a huge game against the Vikings. He really kind of put them in the ground in that game. But I also think that Zadarius Smith was unblockable and he's been maybe the best defensive player in football over the last three weeks. The Seahawks offensive line is not exactly playing well right now. I do think that they can get after Russell Wilson, but what does that even mean? It, it just seems like he's able to make plays anytime he's pressured right now. I mean, he was getting, he got, he, he was pressured on about half of his dropbacks against the Eagles and it just didn't matter. He's either running and scrambling for short gains or making throws down the field. The one he threw to Tyler Lockett on the left sideline, I still don't know how he did that. So even if you think that the Packers defense can contain that team, what Russell Wilson's probably going to find a way to do something. So I, I guess I'll pick Seattle, but I don't feel good about it.
I feel terrible about it. Can you unpack very quickly for me? Because I have not actually heard, uh, you've alluded to it now on two podcasts and then actually heard it. Uh, Zadarius Smith, what he's been doing the last month that makes you think he's one of the best players in football. Oh, just be, he's unblockable. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, just, when you watch him play, no matter where he lines up, whether it's outside, inside, he, he's just destroying people. And he's so fun for me to watch. I remember talking to David Bakhtiari when I went down there uh, in October and I was writing about their defense and kind of about some of the things that they had done since Zadarius and Preston Smith came. And he told me a story about how he just couldn't believe uh, you know, what was happening when he was having to block Zadarius Smith in practice. He's like, who the hell is this dude? I don't know if I've told that story on the pod before. I might have. Mm-hmm. A- but just the first time he had to block him, he's like, what is happening? And I think that's what you see. He's just so powerful. And it, the moves aren't, pretty necessarily but they are they are refined in a certain way but you just don't always know it because he's doing them with so much strength just little chop moves and straight bull rushes and no matter who he's having to go against right now he's able to physically dominate them yeah i mean it's it's one of the signings of the season yeah absolutely i mean he's been fantastic and there's always a projection right There's always a projection with guys that were semi-part-time players in some spots and then get paid to be full-time, high-impact free agents. We've seen it go wrong a lot, and it it has not gone wrong with him. He's been unbelievable. I'd like to address something very quickly because it's interesting because Aaron Rodgers, Kirk Cousins, Jimmy Garoppolo are all, at different levels, well-paid quarterbacks. And there was this... Last year, uh, I believe the top six, maybe more quarterbacks... Uh, top-paid quarterbacks in the NFL did not make the playoffs last year. That is true in the AFC um, as far as cap numbers. Obviously, Ryan Tannehill is making more money than the Titans are paying him because Miami's taking up some. But the cap numbers for the Baltimore Ravens, the Kansas City Chiefs, those are very low because they have rookie contracts. But if you want to look at how to build around a highly paid quarterback, because there have been going back to Ryan Gregson complaining about Andrew Luck, there are GMs who complain about how much they have to pay their quarterback. There are a couple of examples in the NFC about how to build and spend, even though you have a highly paid quarterback. The Green Bay Packers played free agency very, very well. I think people thought they overspent. They did not overspend. Uh, you, we just talked about it. Zedaria Smith is, although he was he came in as a high price free agent, is one of the best players in football right now in January of 2020. Um, the Minnesota Vikings have figured it out. The San Francisco 49ers have figured it out. All of those teams have compensated non-quarterbacks despite compensating their quarterbacks. They've built pretty deep teams around those guys. And I think that if you're going to use the excuse, listen, the best thing to have is a Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes and pay them a few million bucks a year and, and kind of hold off until they get the $200 million or whatever they'll get. But the next best thing is a really freaking good quarterback on $25 million a year and having a smart GM build around them. I think we've seen that if you use free agency to supplement your roster and put the finishing touches on it, it isn't necessarily the evil that people considered it to be a decade ago. No, not at all. I mean, that's that's what happens when the cap goes up $10 million a year. That's correct. And okay, maybe you ha- you make a few mistakes in free agency, but this idea, and you, you probably hear it all the time because I certainly do when you talk to GMs, especially older GMs, about what free agency can bring, they're just like, oh, well, you know, you can't, you can't build through free agency. I mean, yeah, you kind of can, you kind of can from a, you can't have 53 guys come from other places, but you can, you can develop something 
where you're spending a lot of, it's a viable team building opportunity. Do you have to draft your quarterback? Do you have to draft, uh, you know, offensive linemen? Do you have to draft pass rushers? Probably, but it's, if, if you're using free agency doesn't work as an excuse towards team building, you're probably bad at being a general manager. Honestly, I think that a lot of the smart GMs around the league, they're, what they're worried about with free agency isn't necessarily the financial ramifications of it. They're worried about how it impacts your locker room. Right. Because if you that's when people say don't build f- through free agency, it isn't necessarily the contracts you hand out. It's the message you're sending to the guys in the building. And that's why I think a lot of smart teams have signed guys early when they can in order to show people that the resources they have are going to go to in-house players when they deserve it. And right. when I was talking to Rogers about signing Zadarius Smith and Preston Smith, he was saying that a lot of the apprehension about them signing guys over the last 10 years when they weren't signing anyone was in the them signing the wrong guys, whether mm-hmm. it was not, not only just football wise, but personality wise, because when you give a guy a contract, you have no idea how he's going to react. And these guys that are getting signed as free agents, it's not like they're coming in for visits very often, not the high priced guys. These decisions are getting made over the phone within the first half hour of free agency starting. You know, every single guy that got signed by the Packers, Zadarius Smith, Preston Smith, Adrian Amos, they didn't sign with the Packers because of some scheme fit or a conversation they had with the defensive coordinator. They signed with the Packers because they gave them the most money. And that's how this stuff works. So you don't know who you're getting. So when you really are taking a chance personality-wise to a lot of these guys, you can do some homework. You know, uh, with Zadarius, with Preston Smith, excuse me. The Packers inside linebackers coach this season that came over was in Washington when Preston Smith was there. A guy in their front office spent a lot of time with the Ravens front office when they drafted Zadarius Smith. There are resources that you can tap into, but for the most part, it's still a dice roll. And if you bet on the wrong guys, things can start to fall apart. And we've seen that around the league all the time. Yeah, and it's it's funny because what ends up happening is now because guys signed for so much money in the first few hours of free agency, the first day or the first two days, whatever it is, the guys who take the visits, those are the second or third wave of free agency now. So those are the guys you actually get to know. Those are the guys who come in on the fifth day of free agency. It's, you know, it's always some like 32 year old and they, they, they take a visit and then they leave without a contract and oops, so-and-so is at the airport. He had a great visit, but those are the guys who actually get to sit down with the coaches and GMs and all that stuff. And so the, the free agency stuff, there's, it's like what you say, and there's so much projection that goes into it. And I understand why that happens. And, you know, it was, what was it? Trent Brown, I think was the one last year where they basically, the Raiders offered him so much money that his agent was just like, we're, we're done. This is, we're good. Like Trent, we've made the decision. Um, like that's just what happens is the money gets too big and there's, it's not exactly a fact finding mission. And that makes free agency a little bit harder, but again, it can, you can get really good players in free agency and to, to ignore it is to, uh, handicap your team. Absolutely. All right, bud. That's all we got. We will be back on Sunday nights. I will be trying to find a place in Green Bay to record this podcast. Kevin will be in San Francisco, but we will be getting it to you some way, somehow. So as always, thank you so much for listening to the Ringer NFL show on the Ringer Podcast Network. We'll talk to you guys later.
If you're in sales or own your own business, listen up. We all know the top reason businesses fail is because they can't find new customers. All you need is to reach the right audience. Sales Genie is the proven way to find, acquire, and retain customers. If you're serious about finding new customers, try Sales Genie's free 14-day trial. Call 866-561-1322 or go to salesgenie.com slash NFL. That's 866-561-1322 or go to www.salesgenie.com slash NFL. 